Happy July. Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd. I want to take a moment to introduce this 29th episode, Travel with a Lantern and a Star. It's an expression that I heard my brother use in the past, and it kind of stuck with me. But for this purpose, it's a metaphor. It's also a reference to the tarot card of the hermit, which is my personal card. You sometimes see him depicted carrying a lantern. For me, the lantern represents our inner light, or the light of awareness or mindfulness. And a star is following the outer sign or symbol. And this episode was recorded a couple months ago when I had recently returned from travels in Dubai and Indonesia. I was in Bali for the first international mindfulness retreat that I co-hosted. Hope to do that again. And so I wanted to do a talk on how to travel mindfully and optimize our personal growth. So I outlined 10 tips for doing that. But in reflection, I realized I didn't specify whether to travel in a group or not. I was mostly traveling with others, sometimes larger groups, smaller groups, but I did have a lot of personal freedom at times within that. But when you travel alone, I would like to add that it can increase our self-knowledge. You really get a chance to know what your opinions really are, what your preferences actually are. Because if you're anything like me, I'm, I think at least, pretty flexible with others. I don't usually have strong urges one way or the other about what to do or how to spend the time. And I can also go longer periods without eating, so that doesn't necessarily affect my decision-making. But when you're on your own, you have to make choices, and there's really no one else to consult with, so you get a sense of what you really prefer. And that can be helpful, especially entering into relationships to have a clear sense of what you really like and what really inspires you. I'm traveling again for the holidays and delivering this introduction from a remote cabin near Mount Shasta in Northern California, so it's a beautiful place. It's a nice secluded spot to reflect on this previous talk. The main theme of this episode is that there is a baseline of magic in life. And when we excuse ourselves from the myth of urgency, we create the space for that to manifest and we can follow the compass of synchronicity. And that's really been a game changer in my life, the times when I wasn't in a hurry and could wait for the signs and follow those signs. Also, if you would like to see original artwork for this episode and many others by Dove Dahlia, you can do so on the website, michaeltodfink.com slash kindmind. Last month, we had the first Kind Mind gathering in central Illinois in the town of Peru near Starved Rock State Park. The idea there is that it's not just a talk by me, but there's some music, an artist, Kevin Roy Kramer, performing. I played a few songs, read some poetry, gave more time for question, answer, and conversation, and then people could continue to hang out and get to know each other at the venue. And I encouraged people to visit the state park before the event. I hope to do this again in more places 
And if that's something that you would be interested in helping to organize or bringing to your city or state, please reach out to me through the website. My email is there. You can reach out to me on social media, on Instagram at Michael Todd Fink or on Facebook. Thank you again for all your support. If you find the Kind Mind podcast valuable, you can support it by reviewing it on the app that you use to listen and also rating it five stars. I appreciate it when people can share it directly with people they care about or share episodes that you know would be helpful or meaningful to people in your life. You can also support it directly by making a donation on my website, micheltodfink.com forward slash support. And I am really grateful for those who have done that. I would like to make more episodes sooner. And if people contribute, then that will facilitate that. And it doesn't feel right to me to be talking about these topics, sharing these insights, and simultaneously trying to sell you something. I aspire to keep this show advertisement-free. And I humbly seek your support to keep it that way. And now, on to the episode. I officiated a wedding for the first time. Some friends asked me. It sounded like a great adventure because they're wonderful people, super creative. And I knew it would be like making a film together. They're both filmmakers. And it turned out to be so special. I didn't know how good it could feel to marry your friends. When you're at a wedding where there's really love, true love, I think it gives you an out-of-body experience where you just kind of start to think about the big picture. Now, not everybody's going to have that kind of soulmate. But I do think the love between two people at a wedding is reflected in the quality of the experience of the guests. When two people love each other that much, they can take good care of more and more people, dozens of people, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And so it was, uh, it was just wonderful to be, to be a part of that. But um, when Bethany, the bride, said this one line in their original vows, she said, uh, Someday when we're only particles in the sky, my atoms will yearn for yours. And I felt like we all turned into particles at that moment. (laughs) And I thought it was so powerful because that's the truth. It's rare that at an event like that, on a special occasion like that, that people refer to the reality that it's all impermanent, that we're not going to be able to play this role forever and maybe not long at all in the grand scheme of things but atoms don't die so easily I think our carbon atoms live at least 5,000 more years or something like that and then the particles go on in some cases for essentially forever which makes me wonder even if I left spirituality out of it my experiences with meditation if I was just coming at this philosophically what it means to be alive or to have consciousness. So if you're a materialist, it means that there is a way we can assemble these atoms and we'll get you, we'll get life, or we'll get awareness, consciousness, intelligence. 
or it's something immaterial, it's something spiritual. In which case, what does it matter then if the atoms go their separate ways? Because you are really something else, maybe inhabiting that combination of atoms or living in that structure like a soul. And so when people say something like, my soul will go to heaven, I, I sometimes ask them, well, where will you go? <laughs> <laughs> Because anything that's mine is not me. My car goes on to heaven after I die, so I'm okay. No. <laughs> no. Rarely do you hear people say, I go on. Well, what does that mean, you go on? So I thought that was really beautiful. It's scary to do the outer adventure, like out to get all the way over to Indonesia and then to another island even after Bali. And it's scary to climb the inner mountain. So where are we living? We're living somewhere in between two worlds where people are terrified of themselves and they're also pretty intimidated by the external world. I think that's a difficult way to live and there's only one way around that. Climb that mountain. Uh, like Kerouac said, happiness consists in realizing that it's all just a great strange dream and you're not gonna remember working in the office or mowing the lawn, so climb that damn mountain. <laughs> or you go inside. Travel is a piece of the puzzle in our journey to authenticity, and it's a great tool for helping us evolve. I think I had mixed ideas about the importance of travel because I had learned early on in my spiritual training that you have to get into a routine and discipline yourself. And if you're just moving around, then you won't be productive. But I realized later on that, yes, I did that, and that is important. But what I was doing at that time was trekking my inner life. I needed something to be kind of consistent on the outside, just like if somebody can hold down the fort back here, then I can go to Indonesia. And so that's what it's like to have a routine it's very helpful if you're going to storm the inner castle. But if you're not going to do either, then it's really important, I think, to break up our routines so that we can have some experiences that will benefit our brain and our life in a few ways. So some studies have shown that when you learn a foreign language, for instance, it increases the size of our brain. People who are bilingual are much less likely to develop Alzheimer's or dementia. For those that do, its average onset is much later than people who are monolingual. But that doesn't mean that you have to be bilingual to get this benefit. So when you're traveling, it's good to try to learn as many new words as you can because just the practice of building your vocabulary in another language starts to tap into these areas of the brain that are somewhat dormant. As soon as we leave some aspect of life unnurtured, that area starts to decay. I noticed just in this past month that I was gone that the game of basketball um, really sped up in my absence because those neurons weren't firing. So first time I came back to a basketball game the other day, I was like, all of a sudden, everybody got 10 times better. And I'm like telling these other guys, man, how'd you get so fast? How'd you get so sharp? And, you're like, you're just out of shape again, man. <laughs> and uh, so when you don't use it, you lose it with the brain. And there are these 
these areas that we have never really experienced in our brain, these connections. I've said before that intelligence isn't about just having a working brain or a bigger brain. I think Einstein had a smaller brain than average, but it's about making connections within the regions of the brain. So I think of it like a piano. You don't need a bigger piano. You don't even need a perfect piano to be musical. You need to play melodies that you haven't played before. And all of those melodies are always there. But how many do we know? And the more you know, the more musical you are. Learning new words, stepping outside of our ordinary experience like that has a real positive impact on the development of the brain, the neuroplasticity, the malleability of our brain. And other studies have shown that men who don't go on vacation annually have a 30% higher risk of heart disease. Now, you, you might think, well, men who are poorer are less likely to go on vacation. But this study accounted for that. It took a group of subjects, all who can financially travel. So that wasn't part of the experiment. Everybody can travel, but... Uh, those that didn't were 30% higher risk of heart disease. And there's some interesting parallels with women. Women who travel two times per year between the ages of 45 and 64 are significantly less likely to die of, from coronary disease or have a heart attack compared to people in that demographic who travel an average of one time in six years. The part of this is that when you're traveling, you face challenges. You have to solve problems. And it's probably good that you get some challenges. But those challenges are in the present moment. When you're in a routine, your problems are rarely in the present moment. Your problems are about student debt, how I'm going to deal with my boss tomorrow, this deadline coming up. Rarely is it, how do I get through this right now? When you're in a foreign country and you don't know how to communicate <laughs> to somebody to get your car, to get your ride, to get out of this place, you know, you have a real problem. And all of your energy and all of your attention is going to the present moment. So even though it's unpleasant, you're really present. And that's powerful and has a very good effect on the brain. And that's why people who come back from this are more creative and what they call cognitively flexible. In students who study abroad, they are 20% more successful at solving a random computer task than students in college who spent all of their four years or however long their undergraduate time was on campus. And there's many other benefits to this as well. So like when Robert and I were on the volcano, in Lombok, our plan was to go to the top, well, to the rim of the volcano. But we encountered some intense storms. Halfway up, we start to set up a camp. So this is, I don't know, four hours or something into the trek. And we had two porters. We employed as many people as we could because tourism is a big part of how people get by there. And we thought it doesn't take much for us to support the community in this way. So we had a guide and two porters. Now these porters, 
we thought they were going to be like, you know, like expert Sherpas or whatever. But they were like 19 and 20 or something like that. And they were barefoot. And they had bamboo poles on their back. And they're carrying like 50 to 100 pounds of gear strapped on each pole. And this mountain is like, I mean, it's pretty much like going upstairs. It's like endless stairs that pretty much just like straight up, right? Through jungle, through mud, roots, and you're something. And we had sticks to like navigate up this. And they are just running up this mountain. They, they run ahead of us and, you know, set up the camp. And then people would be running back down. It was like an athleticism that we had never seen in our life. I mean, I was thinking like our greatest athletes can't do this because their muscles aren't toned in that kind of way to run through the jungle at like a steep incline barefoot and just like navigate through that. It was incredible to see. But when we came to this camp where we're gonna take a break, a storm comes in, it's like a monsoon. And then we're expecting, all right, they're gonna like, you know, make this great shelter for us and we're gonna get in there, we're gonna get dry, maybe we'll build a fire or something. And then when this blows over, we'll push on. No, they just like pull out this like little cloth and like put a little pole over it and it can't even fit me and Robert underneath it. <laughs> and there's some other people there. There hasn't been a lot of people, so that, you know, makes you a little uncomfortable too. And then they just go huddle under like a, a banana tree. There's like shivering. You know, and we're like, what are we going to do? We're just going to push on, like, soaking wet? So I go over to one of them. We're like, hey, you know, you're freezing, man. Like, you're trembling. Like, we could see our breath at this point because even though it's in the tropics, we're already a few thousand feet up. And he's like, yeah, but once we start going again, I'll warm up. So it's sort of like, I know I'm trembling, but I know it's not permanent, so I'm not bothered by it. You know, so we're kind of just like, is this safe? <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then I just have my backpack with change of clothes because we're camping at the, at the rim. They're all wet. And we look around and there's just like monkeys circling us in the trees, a tiny flimsy tarp that, and we're completely soaking wet. My like shoes and socks are wet. And they're like, it's out of the question to, to not continue. Then I look down on my legs and my lower half of my legs are covered in, in a rash. And I'm like, okay, look at, look at this, man. <laughs> There's more data. You know. <laughs> Robert, you know, he's like, you know, he looks like sympathetically. He's like, yeah, keep taking your malaria pills. Because <laughs> we have like, I have weekly malaria prevention medication. And I wouldn't have taken it if we weren't going into the jungle. If like I was just in Bali, I don't think I would have taken malaria pills. His are daily. And so, yeah, it's like, you know, it sounds, sounds sympathetic, but I could tell it's like moderately sympathetic, right? Cause like he doesn't have a rash, so he can only feel so much empathy. And I'm like, you, you should check yourself too though, man. Cause like, <laughs> you know, we were on the same trail, but he, he had pants that but earlier, the pants were rolled up. So he's like, yeah, I'll check too. And then when he rolls up his pants, he's covered in a rash. And then it's like, all of a sudden, he's like, holy crap, man, I got a rash. <laughs> you know, what are we going to do? I'm like, I had the same rash like a moment ago. <laughs> Big difference when it's your rash. <laughs> you know? He's like, dude, dude, my face is itching also. 
Like, there's a huge bump on your face, man. He's like, we got, we got to get out of here. We got to go. To, we got to go to the hospital. And and so like, so that that sealed it. Like, all right, we're not gonna make it to the top. This is good enough, you know. Like eight hours of trekking a mountain. Good. We're on the volcano. We had the experience. We were out with monkeys. We saw a luwak. Ah, uh, the porters. It was amazing to see their thing. And, and so, you know, we journeyed back. And it was essentially like going down a waterfall to get back down. I mean, I've never been so wet as I was in that rainforest. And the, the interesting thing was after we got down and, well, then we get taken to, there was an earthquake there last year. So parts of the island are in really bad shape. But the driver takes us to places like, why don't, why don't I take you somewhere where you can change and get into some dry clothes? I didn't have any dry clothes. He had a like a dry shirt and something else I could change into that he had in a bag inside of his bag. Our passports were almost destroyed. So these are like real problems that you, you, you got to deal with. It's not like future stuff. It's like right now. And, uh, you know, we get out and he's like, yeah, just, just go in there. It's like a, the ruins of a cafe or something like that from the earthquake. And we, so we go in there and it's not a place you can go into. It's just some, I don't know, it's just looked like a war zone. And so we're in there and there's like something that you can set stuff on. So Robert sets the bag there and he's just, you know, like casually going through. I'm like, don't let your stuff touch anything, man. Like we already got a rash. Like <laughs> don't set the shirt you want me to change into onto this table. And then I'm like, look, and he looks over the right. I'm like, it's just like a wall of black mold that's just like consuming everything. You know, I'm like, do not touch anything. Just hand me whatever is dry, and I'm going to put that on right now. <laughs> and, and then when you get back to safety, it's like such a gift, you know? You feel so, so good to be out of that. But once we got back to the resort place, the rash just disappeared. You wanted to find a hospital? I'm like, there's not a hospital out here. <laughs> like, there's a medicine man, <laughs> you know? That's our best bet. And, uh, but the rash went away. And so I was telling them, you know, like, I don't think we realize that our skin is an organ. We just think you can just touch anything and the skin can be fine. But the skin is the largest organ in the body. We're up there trying to make a decision. Is it safe or not for us? I mean, it's gotta be safe for the porters. They know, they're used to it. They're traveling up and down in a tank top and shorts and bare feet with like 100 pounds going 6,000 feet up and down. I don't know how many miles that is of travel, like when you are moving across and up. So they'll be okay, but we probably wouldn't be okay. You know? <laughs> so Especially because like I haven't done anything like that ever. But your skin then is showing you something. Your skin's helping you make this decision. If you think, you know, your body doesn't know things that you don't know. Well, th this is part of mindfulness. Mindfulness is about really harmonizing the mind and body. There's a famous study called the Iowa Card Experiment. And researchers had a couple decks that they were asking people to flip over, a blue deck and a red deck. And one is ultimately set up in such a way that the person's going to get shocked or lose money. I forget what you win and lose. But basically, long-term, it's a failing enterprise flipping those cards over. But it's not immediately obvious because you will, you know, like with slots at a casino, you can win some at some point, but overall you're going to lose. 
And then the other card, some ups and downs, but long term, if you keep flipping over this other deck, you're going to win. It takes 82 cards turned over before they realize, I'm just not going to flip from that deck anymore. No matter what it has to offer, I realize long term, that's not working for me. It takes the body 10 cards to realize that. How does the body know? The hands are hooked up to a galvanometer or something that can, a lie detector test that can measure sweat from the sweat glands. And the body has reacted to that deck, the adverse deck, 10 cards in. It's already clear before the conscious mind makes that decision 72 cards later. So it took us a little bit to realize what our body was already telling us. Like, this is probably a good stopping point for you guys on this mountain. And so we came down. This is all part of what we need. You know, we need some real-time challenges because in modern life, most of our challenges are fairly abstract. Like, am I ever going to find my soulmate? You know, am I um, going to be at this job forever? Are my kids going to grow up okay? And, and so it's not necessarily right now, but that takes a big toll on our, on our brains. But when it is right now, you problem solve. And when you go out to somewhere else and you, you meet new people, you get fresh ideas. If we're ever struggling to get an idea or get clarity on something, it probably would be wise to just drop it. Just set it down and get a totally different experience. You know, when people are asked to look at a very basic line drawing, like three, four lines of something, and they ask them, what could this be? They give like two, three possibilities. But if you ask them, think like a child, then they can like write a book about it. So somehow, if we can just get out of our routine, we get a lot more inspiration. So while we're out there and all the way through my weekend in Malibu, I made so many friends from all over the world, met some people from Denmark on a boat out of Bali to Lombok, stayed up late into the night talking to an Australian journalist. It was really interesting to talk about our politics and our way of life through the eyes of a different type of Westerner. There's a strong sense that we know what other parts of the world are like, but when you actually get there or you talk with those people, it, I think it really changes your perspective. Ald Aldous Huxley said something like, to travel is to discover that everybody is wrong about other countries. Kind of interesting. And that's largely been my experience. I also think that there are just some, I don't know, there's, there's just some kind of fear implanted about Asia too, especially far Asia. That, you know, maybe it's not safe or something, but I don't think I ever felt more safe, really, than the times I've been in Asia. But you, you learn some of these things because you step outside of your ordinary reality. Then you make new friends. And so I feel like in the last month, I've made more friends than I have in the last several years. Our life both in our communities and now online is not what we think it is. We feel like, well, I'm connected to all my friends, wherever they may be, so I'm cultured. But we don't realize how algorithmically tailored our news feeds are to our personalities. To really meet the world means 
to go talk to somebody from another country in another country, to hear their story, to learn some of their words. Every time I meet somebody from another country or in another country, I just start to try to acquire words. Because why not? That's what's growing the brain. And it happens so much quicker than it can if you're just reading how to say thank you in another language. Like, it just doesn't stick. But when you need it to thank this cab driver or to get this person to give you this food or whatever, it happens pretty, pretty easily. You pick up on at least some of the basics. So, so you meet people, and then this changes, I think, the way we understand ourselves. It breaks us out of these echo chambers. And, and this other author said, like, could you imagine if Wikipedia worked the way social media works. We get a lot of our news of, about the world through our news feed, but my news feed is not your news feed. So could you imagine you go onto Wikipedia and when I look up somebody or something or an event, it gives me an article based on my personality. <laughs> when someone else goes there, it's gonna give them a different historical perspective based on their cultural viewpoint and so on. That's what, that's what we're actually dealing with but travel helps you to to break out of this so you know so you meet different people and I think it's just really good for us now what's frustrating to me is why does this happen when I go abroad or when I go even to another part of the country like California how is it that I'm just making friend after friend and we're talking about the meaning of life and then I come back and it feels like oh I can't do that with anybody <laughs> So this was really interesting juxtaposition. A day and a half or two days after I got back, I had a seminar to attend, not give, attend, by the Institute for Brain Potential. So that's a fascinating organization, right? And there's 150 of us, all clinicians, people in healthcare, and we're all interested in the brain. And there was a great professor who was teaching us, and we're there all day. And yet, I didn't meet a single person. I thought that was really strange. And this happens a lot in our country, not just here. You go to a concert. You go to the concert, you're with thousands of people, and when you leave, how many new friends do you have, like really new friends have you made there? Maybe none. Like you go in with your significant other and you come out with your significant other. And so this being such a curated experience and still didn't happen. So like that was really discouraging for me. But my thought process was, well, what's different about me in another country? Because people get on a plane, for instance, I told you, like, I immediately introduced myself. But oftentimes when we get on a plane, like, that's the last thing we want. We just kind of want to go into our world, maybe watch a movie and just get through this, right? But maybe that's how I am when I'm in my routine. And maybe that's how other people are. We're all, like, on a plane, just want to put my headphones on. Because in your routine, nothing's new. Well, I thought at least at this conference is something new. But then I'm reflecting on that. And then the next day, I have a talk at a symposium. And then it's like the total opposite experience. I have my part, other people have their part. And then we go to lunch. People are sitting with me. We're talking. I'm engaged. Uh, conversation after conversation. It was good. Because if that didn't happen, I was going to be like, I'm going back to Bali. That's it. <laughs> Maybe I still will. And, uh, and I'll find a way to make, make a difference for people back here. And I'll always be like, you know, you're always welcome to come with me or to meet me out here. <laughs> I mean, at least right now, there's more to do. So 
my thinking then is this. When you're in another part of the world, you want to pay attention to what is different about you because you're going to realize that life is happening in an accelerated way. It feels like you're just cruising through the movie. So it's not boring. It's exciting. It's like happening so fast that you can't look away for it for a minute. So you look away, you'll miss something. And it's just on fast forward. I feel like more alive than I've ever been this past month. I feel like I've lived 10 years in the last 10 days because I could write a book about what just happened. So but what is different about you? And when you're out there, you got to pause and see what is going on with my attitude. If you want to heal, go travel. If you've lost love, go travel. Because when you're in your routine, it's your routine minus your love. And that's nothing but heartbreak. When you go travel, everything's lost. Now it's about reinvention. Or it's about authenticity. Okay, I'm not the other. I'm not the worker. I'm not the artist. I'm not the speaker. Nobody knows me here in this island. I'm nobody that I thought I was. So who am I? You get a chance to be totally real, be, find the truth about who you are. And when you see yourself through the eyes of new people and you see them and you see their love and you see the happiness in people in other parts of the world and they're happy because their life is simpler, you, know, you get to access some of that and you get to integrate some of that into your own understanding of life. But whatever it is that's different about you, you have to ask yourself, why can't I have that inner environment back here or anywhere? Because though this open joy and receptivity and spontaneity and courage and so on is manifesting in me, that's all inside. Uh, even though it's manifesting on the mountain, whatever's inside is inside. So I must have access to that anywhere. That is the challenge when you come back to whatever your routine may be is how do I bring the best inner environment to whatever outer environment I have so that I don't always have to wait until the outer environment is conducive for me to be mindful. Because if you look closely, you'll find that wherever you are, even if you're at work or you're in your car on your way to work, on your normal commute, something is always happening that you've never experienced before. But because on the surface, it's all the same, the mind just drifts off into abstract thought and we miss it. So I wanted to uh, bring this close to a conclusion by sharing with you 10 tips for mindful travel. Okay, number one, choose meaningful travel. So I think we get really good at vacationing in a way where the vacation becomes routine. It's like the 20th time I've gone to Cancun or whatever and I stay in the same place and I have the same drive, everything's the same. Or I go to my family cabin. It's like, those are nice places to relax and recharge, it's great. But for this type of mindful travel I'm talking about, you want to choose a meaningful place and something that is outside of what's familiar to you. That's number one. And secondly, when you get there, you need to be curious. You need to be interested in what you're going to experience. So I could go anywhere in the world and I can find the American pub and I can find the most Western hotel 
with Wi-Fi and TV and keep myself quarantined in that way and it's not going to do anything for us. So you want to be curious, you want to be present. And number three, this is very important. In this kind of mindful travel, you want to leave space for spontaneity. People go on trips and they just book the hell out of their whole time. Sometimes the planning is about our need for control. If you plan it too much, then that means that there's no room, for, there's no adventure anymore. It's all completely organized and completely set. Now, you want to have some plan because you don't want it to just, just do nothing, but leave space. If you leave space, I promise you, and this is just, this is fantastic, there will be synchronicity. If there's spontaneity, synchronicity is inevitable. One time in Prague, when I was a young man, I was with like two other friends. It was a Tuesday night, and we we're like, let's, let's go out all night, you know, because we're on spring break or something. There's space for it. Well, I don't gotta get up in the morning, I don't gotta go to school. So let's find a place, and we'll start there, and we'll see where it goes from there. So we pick this little dungeon-looking bar in some off-street in the, in the city. And it's like this stone place, you go down some steps and we go in there, it's dimly lit. And inside of that bar are around 20 other people that I know. <laughs> on Tuesday night in the Czech Republic. <laughs> All coming in groups of like us, three or four separately. So there's about five small groups of people that randomly chose that place that night most of them from Georgetown, traveling in Europe. That was an epic night. I drank absinthe for the first time. <laughs> and only time. <laughs> because I urinated on a, uh, on a closet of our host. And I felt terrible. But up until that point, it was amazing. <laughs> Synchronicity. Now, I'm open to the idea that when you got nothing going on, anything at all that has meaning looks like it's really meaningful. And that may be, but synchronicity is really the secret to success. I wasn't so attached to the idea that I got to play the lead guitar in whatever band I'm going to be in. In the Giventry Band, no one's playing the banjo. If you want to play the banjo, if you're willing to learn that, then we could have a good thing. I never planned that. I never knew that was going to happen. And it turned out to be a great thing. And who knows what, what else to come, but that's how success works. You can't plan for which door is going to open. And I was telling the students at Harper College how to have a successful career. Could I have planned for my podcast <laughs> as a student? There wasn't even a such thing as podcasts. There wasn't phones like that. There wasn't apps. And I said, God only knows what there will be for you to take forward as you journey on in your careers. So I said, so don't worry about it. Just know what your values are and start seeing if doors are open. But when you leave that space, synchronicity happens. It doesn't matter if it's really what our higher power wants or if it's just statistical chance. The point is, those are going to be your opportunities and I hope you take it. And then the next one, number four, 
to have a lot of fun, to play and take some risk. I'm not saying like get into dangerous stuff, but taking risk means do something that you wouldn't normally do. Just try something different. Try food you've never had before. Try to see how far up the mountain you can get. And then let go. You know, like it's scary to be in turbulence in a plane. It's, it's kind of scary to be caught on a mountain in a monsoon. I think I make peace with this because I keep following my heart. People invite me to do these things. So like when you're on your path, I think it just, it leads you to adventure. When you force your will on the universe, it doesn't lead to adventure. When you are so rigid about how it needs to go, especially in creativity, and I tell this to other artists, if you already know the kind of thing you have to create and only that, well, then you're just going to miss all these open doors. But when you let go in that way, like if I died on that mountain, I mean, that's not a bad death. (laughs) That would be a really great ending to my story. But I don't want to die yet. I think I have more to do. And if I die on a plane, that's such a rare thing. If something so statistically rare happens, it's not ideal. But it's not something that I want to worry about, even if I'm there and it seems like this could be the time. I'm not going to worry about something that's plausible, but highly improbable. If you're in pursuit of meaning, you can accept what's going to happen. Because in the end, we're all destined to be particles anyway, sooner or later. Don't die before you die, is all I'm saying. Number five, prioritize self-care. Do all the self-care you can, while you can. So at some point, we've just got to go. I'm talking like weeks, months, you have to find a way. And maybe it happens after you're retired. People over 55 account for, I think, half of the travel budget of the world. So mostly it's happening there, but younger people are are traveling more. And and when we're out and about, you know, I met a lot of young people in Asia backpacking, met people on a seven-month honeymoon. And that's awesome. You can do it. If you have the space, you could have this feeling like, I I really just need to sleep today. It's a big deal if you're just going to sleep in your ordinary week. You got to call in sick, you got to come up with a story or something. (laughs) And then, you know, people criticize that and they judge you at work and all that. (laughs) And so it's not like good quality rest. It's not like you really can sleep then because you're like, you know, you're then behind. And so most of the times you just don't do that. There are so many times when your body like, like right now, like I really need to sleep probably, you know, (laughs) but I can't or I tell myself I can't, you know, because I, I work to do. And that's pretty much every single day of our life. But when you have this space, it's like, no, I really need to rest. But it's not like you're gonna be lazy because you can't just sleep. You'll sleep until you feel good. And when you feel good, you're on an adventure. So you wanna go again. You wanna go back out to the mountain or you wanna go see something. So you can do self-care in a way that is just like totally impossible in our ordinary routine. I think I just need to drink juice today. Nothing but juice. I gotta get really hydrated and nothing heavier than juice. And then I'll be done with that. Plus in Bali, The best massage you've ever had in your life is $15. So, yeah, I'll get three of them, you know. (laughs) I mean, seriously, the foot massage at this retreat center was like a meditation. It was like a ceremony. Because the therapist 
just so present and you feel it. I mean, you just don't always get that here. People do the work, but it's like always a means to something else. It's not like in a lot of other parts of the world, like, no, this is, this is exactly what I want to be doing. I want to make you have an amazing experience. I take great pride in that. I also found that to be the case in Western countries too, like in Greece, the cook, the driver. I just want you to have the best possible experience because that feels good in my heart. So self-care so that you can recharge and really engage in your adventure. And then number six, learn new things. So I already mentioned, try to learn the language, learn as many words as you can, ask about the culture. When we were in Lombok, the little bit lesser traveled island, you gotta either take a, another smaller flight or a boat out there. We didn't see another American for five days. Miles of pristine beaches and an opportunity to mostly meet local people. And then Australians, because for Australia, it's like a two hour flight. And then we had a guide take us to some indigenous villages. And I got to see what their houses look like and how they live. And then I asked, do you have a, a shaman? Do you have a holy man or holy woman? And he's like, yeah, yeah, are you okay? Are you sick? You need uh, medicine? No, just want to learn about the spirituality. But anyways, learn something new and seek out new experiences. Then number seven, reflect about this at night. Talk about it with somebody. Process what you're experiencing, which is like totally new. You need like some kind of therapeutic session at night if you can. All the times when I was out in other parts of the world, I didn't, I didn't want to sleep. And I didn't really need much sleep because it's so energizing. When I was in India, I had a roommate in a dorm in an ashram from Poland, and then another one from Iceland, and then some people from India. And I would just talk all night. Number eight, take care of other people wherever you go. Try to care for people in unique ways. Help the people that you meet. Practice kindness. Number nine, Cultivate gratitude for these experiences. Keep a gratitude journal if possible. Every night when you're doing the reflection, then you can also write what, what was the synchronicity of the day? What was special about today? And then number 10, try to integrate this into wisdom upon your return. So what's different about you now? How are you gonna live differently? How are you gonna bring the best inner environment that you got access to because of the outer environment? How are you gonna bring that to your family, to your community, to your workplace. We don't have to just travel to other parts of the world to get a taste of this. I mentioned in the description that if we can, in the meantime, let ourselves get lost once in a while. Why, why can't I just turn off the phone and the GPS and just be in this other neighborhood in Chicago or wherever once just went up the coast of Lake Michigan? No plan. But we had a whole week. Not even the next place is planned out. I love that. We just stopped wherever we wanted to stop. We met whoever we wanted to meet. We talked to people. We camped sometimes. Sometimes we stayed indoors. Sometimes we stayed outdoors. Breaking the myth of urgency. Gotta do, gotta do, gotta do. And then uh, we miss out on these opportunities and you just don't remember any of that stuff you gotta do. You remember when you don't gotta do something. So give yourself that gift, meet new people, 
Go outside of your comfort zone. Get into nature. Get lost in the woods. <laughs> but be careful. I mean, don't be stupid. <laughs> when I was having some serious back trouble, I went to an osteopathic doctor. She said, I just want you to really keep these four bones taken care of and then everything will be okay, regardless of your back pain. The first one is your funny bone. <laughs> if you're not laughing, there's nothing I can do to help you. Laughter is the best medicine. Make time for humor. Find the joy in everything you do and everywhere you go. Make people laugh. The second one was your backbone. Don't compromise on your values. Be authentic. Be real. And the third one was the wishbone. You have to keep dreaming. You have to keep envisioning new adventures, especially in a relationship. I finally learned that the life of a relationship is the next dream. Keep dreaming. And then the last one was the hollow bone. Um, what's the hollow bone? So the hollow bone is the space that you leave in your body, in your life, in your mind to let the mystery operate. If you try too hard to impose your will on the universe, there's no mystery. There's no magic. And I mentioned the co confirmation bias in previous groups. If you believe that your life sucks, you will be looking for all the things that aren't good. If you believe the world's going to hell, you'll find plenty of evidence for it. <laughs> and if you believe in magic, you will find it. <laughs>